So the two consequences of this new policy that's been put in place, there's twofold. The numbers are going to be hidden because we're going to have lots of COVID that's circulating and we're not going to see those numbers. So we're actively hiding the numbers. And number two, a whole bunch of people are going to get sick from COVID, people that otherwise wouldn't have gotten sick. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Back to the Forgotten Quarter podcast. We are proud members of the Harbinger Media Network. If you like podcasts such as this, you're looking for podcasts such as this one, you should head on over to the, uh, the website. We'll include the link in our show notes and listen to some podcasts like this one. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Scott Schmidt, along with my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Mr. Appel, how are you today? Hello, Scott Schmidt. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, doing all right. Uh, this is our first emergency uh, Forgotten Corner. Yeah. And we haven't even recorded, like we, have, we, we took a month off, like this is our summer break and we're like jumping back in because we were, I was on holidays when all of the shit hit the fan, like I couldn't have picked a better week to not be here because like Alberta starts making international news as soon as I uh, unplugged, but uh, yeah, good times it's been apparently. Yeah, um, it's great. I've heard uh, COVID cases are down for some reason. That can't be true. Is it true? I don't know. I heard no, they're up. No, it was it was it was uh it was a dark joke about oh, us. I can't uh, do darkness this early on a Tuesday. Anyway. Yeah, right. it's true. It's also our first uh Tuesday recording. That's right. And we can't we can't like mess around because Mo has to have this episode out in like less than twenty-four hours because uh we have this uh, there's a reason there's a timely reason why we're doing this so let's just jump right in because uh we've got the good doctor on the phone and he's driving and zoom and uh talking hands-free of course like all all legal but uh he's gonna give us our thoughts so anyways let's jump right in dr joe vipond is an er physician from the city of calgary now a year and a half into being on the front lines of the battle against covid19 and its growing list of variant friends he is a co-founder of Masks for Canada, a group of physicians and citizens which has advocated for mandatory mask use since the early days of the pandemic. These days, Dr. Vipond is in the news as one of the many frontline experts in Alberta, literally rallying against the United Conservatives' decision to not only remove all public health orders, but to also cease proper testing and contact tracing as of the 16th of August. Dr. Vipond, welcome back to the Forgotten Corner, my friend. Wow, it's an honor to be back on here, guys. It's been, uh, what, about six, seven months since yeah, we, we last chat. <laughs> all this happened, it's crazy. Uh, you know, when this pandemic first started, we were, they were talking about, like, is this going to last more than six weeks? And you were on the show talking about this very thing six months ago, and here we are again, and, and here we are heating back up with with uh reasons to be concerned um i we guess all this, want this to be right like i mean there's yeah there's this this voice out there that like 
only the uh, the anti-maskers, the freedom lovers want want this over, and everybody else wants uh, wants uh, to oppress. And but but the reality is, is everybody is done with this. Nobody's enjoying this. But unfortunately, um, reality uh, kind of gets in the way, right? There are some inconvenient truths we have to talk about. Well, this is, and there's so many different inconvenient truths. And if you want to hear uh, more about Dr. Vipon Head, uh, we had him on, we're just discussing that, obviously. We had him on in January for a two-parter that you guys should check out. Uh, you'll, you'll hear all about um, his activism in his first love, um, fighting for the climate and environment. And uh, so uh, he knows all about uh inconvenient truths of course and uh facing realities that we have no choice but to face whether we want to or not and so uh but right now it's it's a pandemic you've been an er doctor throughout that uh when we had you in january you were the only guest we've ever had to disclaim their opinions so so as to separate themselves and and the backlash they might receive from their colleagues that was january uh, pretty yeah, outspoken. Pretty outspoken last week for you. Where are you on that front? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've kind of stopped that. I think it's pretty clear. I no longer uh, have any. There's no way that anybody would think I'm speaking for anybody other than uh, myself. And and I'm not speaking for no university. I'm not speaking for Alberta Health Services. I'm, I mean, we could talk a little bit about Alberta Health Services, but they've made some really bad decisions in the last week. Um, so yeah, it'll be pretty clear. I think through the podcast that. Uh, we're, we are, I'm not a spokesperson for them. Well, and I don't think that uh, you're on an island anymore the same way that you might have felt six months ago either. Like this, like it sounds like the province is sounding the alarm pretty high and there are a lot of doctors who uh, maybe not um, quite as outspoken, but certainly more doctors and physicians seem to be... Uh, speaking out against this or am i missing that no absolutely i mean we'll talk about the rallies but we're having a broad swath of society including you know lots of doctors at every rally and and uh, i don't i don't think today will be any different so um, it's great to see people being vocal because uh and, and i hope we get into this in the podcast talking a little bit about how democracy works and it's not just voting every four years um you know so uh, th this is how this is what democracy looks like, right? Just like the old protest chant. So this is that's this is why we're doing this sort of emergency style, right? Because one, we have about what is it today, the third of August. So we're we're looking at thirteen days till they uh, make this move that they're probably going to do whether we rally or not. But uh, you've been doing some rallies back and forth. You're going. You're on your way to Edmonton for one this morning. Yeah, is this your first? Um, mobile podcast this is i think yeah. yeah yeah you're our first mobile guest i mean we're pretty stationary <laughs> it's uh, uh yeah. yeah so so it's it's really um you know balls to the walls now because we um we only have 13 days and i would disagree um you know people have said you know jc kenny never reverses a decision except for on parks except for on um you know coal uh, you know, we, they haven't gotten the curriculum through uh, the KXL pipeline, obviously, uh, blew up in their faces. Right. Um, I, I would argue, can you point out to me a policy where Kenny has, uh, Premier Kenny, let's be respectful, Premier Kenny has, has tried to put it through and, and has actually succeeded. The only ones I can think of are um, the ongoing funding of the uh, Alberta War Room 
and uh, and the uh, inquiry. Um, I'm sure right. there's uh, people more politically astute that could point out other other uh, quote unquote successes that they've had. But it's, I, it's been a pretty dismal two years for the UCP. I I agree with that. I guess my where I'm coming from on that is I don't see the same willingness to move around based on public opinion when it comes to COVID. Uh, like it seems like when they've made a decision with COVID, they found out the hard way that that was a bad decision. Whether we've had doctors, first, right? we did have restriction put in place in in the second wave late for sure, but yeah. still put in place. We did get restrictions put in place in the third wave late, but um, but but they did happen. So um, honestly, even on that, uh, they have pulled it. Um, you know, if you want to talk about strategy, and we, we can only suppose, because who knows exactly what the motivation is, but uh, he was in a lot of trouble at the end of June, right? Because uh, his, his phone was down, and, and he basically did a Hail Mary pass saying, we're going to have the best summer ever, and Stampede is going to be amazing. And then over the last 10 days or so, we started seeing that exponential growth, fastest to the pandemic, right? Uh, doubling time of, of five days for, for, uh, for cases per day which uh, is the fastest in the pandemic, uh, probably thanks to a combination of absolutely no health restrictions and Delta being a, a super transmissible disease as bad as chickenpox, um, as the CDC says. Um, and, and so, you know, I was talking with some of my colleagues, my Mass for Canada colleagues, I'm like, he's kind of in a tight spot, right? Like there's only two options. He puts in restrictions, which, which pisses off his base, or he doesn't put in restrictions which allows for exponential growth and that obviously the optics of that are super bad. Um, but I didn't even think of a third option, which is you hide the number of cases while allowing um, for uh, trying to get herd immunity by just letting her rip. That was not even, uh, a, not even remotely a possibility in my mind. Um, and, and yet here we are. Well, I wanted to ask about um, the rallies that um, one of which you're on your way to in Edmonton. How have they been going? What I mean, what from from your perspective as as an organizer, um, what's it been like? Yeah, I mean, I've run a lot of campaigns over the years, right? I was involved in the Alberta coal phase out, the Canadian coal phase out. I was involved in the AMX Net Zero, getting uh, masks in uh, allowed in Canada, getting mandatory masks in Calgary. Um, they've all had different techniques, um, but this is the first time it's been an emergency. We have we had 17 days after the announcement to get things um, put through or to get things fixed. Um, and a lot of the techniques we've used in the past, which is, you know, public meetings and um, meeting with politicians and those kind of things, we were unable to, you know, just wouldn't work in this kind of um, scenario because it is an emergency. We only have so much time. So, uh, in my mind, the only way that you can quickly um, change the opinion of policymakers is a massive force uh, every day until um, uh, and getting bigger every day. Um, and I can't speak for Edmonton. I think it's been pretty stable at around 300 protesters a day in Edmonton. Uh, but in Calgary, we've been growing every day from um, 400 to 500 to 750 to 850. And that's over the, the first four um, protests. So uh, we've had a diverse uh, group of speakers in Calgary. We've had anything from, you know, infectious disease physicians to family doctors to parents of kids with long COVID to we had a 12-year-old yesterday 
We had a mayoral candidate, uh, Councillor Gondek, uh, present. Um, we've had, uh, uh, you know, just such a, an, an amazing group of, uh, of people starting to go. And to, to be clear, all of this is grassroots. All of this is done with essentially no organizing, right? It was like a tweet put out, hey, everybody, let's meet uh, at noon for the next 16 days. And, um, and yet the, here we are. We had our first real organizing meeting yesterday. So all of this has been done on the fly. All of this has been um, very, very loose. And, and yet we're, we're winning. We're winning the air war. We're winning the ground war. So uh, I, I'm feeling really positive about this. And what are you guys seeing from the outside? I mean, certainly it's... I mean, it's hard to feel positive, I guess, in the sense that uh, it, it seems that we just make the wrong decision as a province every step of the way along here. So positivity, maybe not the word that I can find, but it is, um, it's heartening, I guess, to see so many people standing up and saying like enough is enough and doing something about it. And I, I mean, I, I hate to be the jaded pessimist. Like I honestly do hope that this means that will will lead to something i fear that it will <clears throat> the what they'll do is what they always do is let it be a disaster before they before they do something about it instead of listening to the people but um one 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 of the things i really wanted to ask you about right off the bat here was um when you were on in january <laughs> We talked a little bit about Dr. Hinshaw and and you were and and if, and if people, by the way, uh, on either side of the fence, if people think Dr. Vipond has any vindictiveness or has any ulterior motives or whatever, when we had him on six months ago, he had uh, um, some positive things to say about Dr. Hinshaw and gave her as much benefit of the doubt as you could ever imagine as far as um, why she might be making decisions she makes. Um, but recently uh, you have publicly called for her resignation. And uh, I obviously I, I know what the straw was that broke the camel's back being this last week, but uh, what, what sort of prompted you to go from being careful about what you said about that to just saying like, this is it. I, I don't care anymore. I, I'm, I'm going to say it. Sure. And, and just to start, I'll just address your pessimism. Um, one <laughs> of my favorite quotes ever is that when the impossible becomes merely difficult, you know, you've won. So we're in the, uh, we're the, in the uh, impossible phase, but I think we're tending towards the difficult phase. I mean, we are winning the air where we're in the, we're the, they're not even showing up for, for interviews, right? The only people on the news right now are those. There's no government officials. Dr. Hinshaw right. disappeared, not willing to defend her policy. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I am, I have to feel positive because honestly, I think the, it's kind of like the climate crisis, right? Like the, if we fail, the consequences are so massive. Um, I just don't even want to contemplate that. And so, you know, this is looking at, you know, in Alberta, humanitarian level but uh but but uh, rather than like a global ecosystem collapse but it's still like the emergency right now that we have to deal with and i think it also talks a lot about how our democracy is functioning um whether this is allowed to pass so um anyway so let's deal with the pessimism let's talk about um our public health officials uh our in particular our chief medical officer of health dr hinshaw um I'll just point out at the very beginning of the pandemic, way back in like April of, of 2020, um, I started advocating for masks, um, which was directly in opposition to all of our public health officials who said masks were 
kind of useless unless you were symptomatic. Um, and uh, I, I had a bunch of doctors reach out to me and say, you know, you're kind of undermining our public health officials. Um, and at a time where they really need to be um, supported uh, and, and not criticized at all. Um, and, and I thought about it for a while and I thought, well, you know, that's, that's fine and dandy. Um, but, you know, they're missing this key component. And in a democracy like this marketplace of ideas, they should be allowed to throw out this idea and we can at least have a, a debate about it. And if I'm wrong, then at least that, that idea has been thrown out there for discussion. Um, but over the last year, um, we've seen some, some increasingly uh, strange tendencies um, from Dr. Hinshaw to basically, um, I mean, it kind of seemed like she was towing the party line, right? Which her job is to support public health or essentially the health of the public. Um, and yet uh, at, at times in the pandemic, we've heard her like in October of last year, deny that there was a second wave. In fact, she suggested that the, the term second wave was not to be applied to COVID. It was only to be applied to seasonal infections like influenza, which I think everybody, that was the first time I kind of shook my head and said, that, that's a little bit of doublespeak, right? Like that's that's not consistent with my knowledge of the topic of, uh, of, of epidemiology of, of, a, of a pandemic. Um, and then we went on to, I mean, to, to have her and not to be fair, not just her, but many of the public health officers, the chief medical officer of the health across the country, um, be completely unable to say the word airborne transmission um, in relation to this. And and I've been arguing for a long time that it, you know unless you're able to um, pinpoint or discuss the underpinnings of the disease that it's that it's airborne transmission, how how could you how can you mitigate that transmission? It'd be like saying you know, chlamydia, um, you know, your, your main means of, of dealing with chlamydia is toilet seats um, rather than sexual activity. Like, you, you, kind of, you kind of fail in mitigating chlamydia unless you kind of pinpoint the exact um, uh, human act that, that, that <laughs> involves the transmission of the disease from one person to the other. And I, and I think uh, that's what we're seeing there. And then, you know, uh, into the, the third wave and second wave where there she was supporting the government. I remember that one day where she said, uh, um, Kenny said it first and then she said it. She, um, uh, Premier Kenny said, you know, there's this worry that if we put in more restrictions, uh, citizens will paradoxically uh, be, uh, will tend to, 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 to behave worse. Um, and then she parroted that, like, I think the next day. Um, like there is no example in the history of humanity uh, or in, in the history of the pandemic uh, throughout the geography of, of the world where um, where if you put in rules, people will be more likely to break those rules. It just it, it, it flies in the, in the face of common sense. Um, and I think everybody, again, shook their head going, oh, something something weird's going on here. And, and, of course, this new policy that's been released is the last straw. Yeah, I mean, why have any rules at all? I mean, if people are just going to break them, right? Like, wh why not just make crime legal? I hear you'd have less murder if murder was legal. Yeah, it just, I just, one of the things that's really strange, like in a scientific debate, you know, you have to reference things and you have to, like, say, okay, here's the evidence. 
Um, when you're doing a political presser, you don't have to do that. You can just say whatever you want. <laughs> and unless uh, media is right on at fact-checking stuff and questioning stuff, um, then things are let to slide. So, um, so, yeah, that's where we're at. When it comes to our public health officials, like uh, setting aside just even just towing the line of whatever Kenny says, it seems you talked about, you know, uh, mask use was not recommended uh uh, even considered useless early and uh, uh, so on and so forth as you go on these different vi variations of what we may or may not be like airborne transmission oh let's pretend like we, we pr act like for sure it doesn't exist until we know it exists and what what do you make of that concept about like if you're thinking about something like a deadly virus if you're approaching uh, mitigating for that, shouldn't you be approaching for, let's assume absolute worst possible scenario. Like let's assume it's airborne transmission. Let's assume that asymptomatic uh, transmission without masks is highly likely as opposed to assuming that it's not a risk, assuming that masks won't work, assuming it's not airborne until we're proven wrong. Like I don't understand that. What do you make of that approach? So the term you're using is, is actually, it's got a, a specific term called the precautionary principle. And that is if the benefit of something far outweighs the risk of something, even if you don't know 100% for sure it's going to work, you, you put it in place. And masking would be a good example of that. I mean, you probably heard it applied the opposite way, where if the risk of something uh, far outweighs the benefit, you should probably not use it. And that could be argued for, you know, some pesticides. Um, so the, the sad reality is, is we had a Royal Commission on SARS-1 uh, way back in 2003 that outlined all of this, presume it's airborne, have the best possible masks for your healthcare workers, um, use uh, N95s for airborne transmission, um, uh, and, and, and mask up the population as if this is a, 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 an airborne disease until we know better. Um, that was also in a WHO uh, pandemic document uh, not that long ago, I think like maybe in the mid-10s. Mid, mid um, so we just threw all that out the window. We just uh, decided that um, that there wasn't the evidence and unless we had solid evidence for this stuff until we received that. So, you know, I, I can't speak for the public health doctors as to why they decided to go down that path. Um, but, uh, but the sad reality is, is that's the path we walked. And I think there's been substantial um, you know, morbidity and mortality that has resulted because we've been kind of slow off the mark to apply these principles. Uh, Joe, I, want, I wanted to ask you, because there's this um, argument percolating that if uh, Hinshaw resigns, um, she could be replaced by someone worse. But... Is, is that even, is that possible? Is it, I, I mean, can you get more um, subservient to the government's agenda than uh, Hinshaw has been, especially uh, this year? Dr. Hinshaw um, has put in place a policy that is arguably the worst in the world. There's no other jurisdiction that is essentially pretending that COVID is over and that we can just go back to normal activities that's pretending that Delta isn't a danger to our, our zero to 12 year olds um, through the risk of long COVID uh, and, and, you know, basically a long-term disability that goes on for 
for we don't know how long, may, maybe for the lifespan, maybe for, for months to years. Um, and, and even going so far as to say as, you know, we allow you guys to make the choice of not being vaccinated, but if you do make that choice, we're putting you at a high risk of ending up in the hospital and, and in the ICU. There was a very strange tweet uh, from her account that essentially said that. Um, and, you know, I think the the most important thing, um, and, you know, I, I said we want to talk about democracy a little bit. The most important thing sometimes on this is accountability. So if people are allowed to put in a dangerous policy, um, policy that's basically contravenes the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and taking away our right to liberty and sorry, our right to, right to life and uh, and the security of person, um, then if, if we allow that to just go without any consequences, um, then then there's creep, right? We saw this in the United States. Um, you know, maybe it's okay if we lock children in cages. Um, they're not our, our children, so uh, we won't protest in the streets. Um, so, and then, and then things were allowed to just continue to get worse and worse until they had an insurrection, you know, on January 6th, uh, because there was no accountability in the United States. So I think Canada's not quite as far gone down that path of, uh, of authoritarianism that the States was walking down um, as little as uh, eight months ago. Um, but, uh, but now is our time to stop it so that we do have accountability so that dangerous policies aren't allowed to be put in place. Uh, aren't, aren't you concerned that uh, these type of types of things get normalized um, what, once they're implemented? I mean, you mentioned kids in cages uh, under Trump. I mean, they're still there, right, under Biden. So, um, I mean, does that concern you as it pertains to um, COVID restrictions or lack thereof? Yeah, I mean, I think the scariest thing about the last 18 months and, and, and most exemplified now is how um how fragile our institutions are and how um how unable they've been to rise up to the challenge of uh, of this public health emergency um I, I i was telling a story a couple days ago that it's it's like when you're a, a little kid and like all adults are awesome and like your parents are the best people in the world and never make mistakes and there's some point in your life where you start to recognize that you know, not every single adult has um, good intentions, and your parents do make mistakes, and it's really kind of earth-shattering because, like, wait a minute, I thought the world was like completely safe and and everything was awesome, uh, and and then you feel like the ground's kind of shifting under your feet, and I feel that way right now about our institutions, where uh, you know something like public health has, uh, you know threaten the health of the public uh, explicitly, like actually going out of their way. I mean, the, the two, I want to be very clear that the two results, the two consequences of this new policy that's been put in place, there's twofold. The numbers are going to be hidden because we're going to have lots of COVID that's circulating and we're not going to see those numbers. So we're actively hiding the numbers. And number two, a whole bunch of people are going to get sick from COVID, people that otherwise wouldn't have gotten sick. And that is in particular those people that are unvaxxed, which we have given them the choice to not be vaccinated. And in particular, the zero to 12s who don't even have that opportunity because the uh, 
uh, the Health Canada hasn't approved vaccines for the zero to 12 group. And so um, th those are two massive consequences uh, which, which undermine our democracy. That right there, when you say like to me, like there is a point eventually where, you know, things do have to open up. And I think that like, I don't think anyone's arguing that there is a pl time and place for not, not necessarily not counting who has COVID anymore. That's just goddamn asinine at any time. But as far as just, you know, letting people get back with whatever it is they call a normal life, I understand that. But this, this idea that when zero to 12 year olds or zero to 11.9 year olds are, are not even eligible. That's where I, I can't understand how you can with any type of conscience or uh, anything be making a decision like this, because those like right now, I think I saw something this morning where COVID has become a top 10 uh, uh, cause of death in the United States for adolescents. So yeah, it, it is it is obviously dangerous. And, you know, our son is 12. He's vaccinated. I was just talking to a co-worker's uh, partner, a wife yesterday, who their two kids are both under the age of six. So she is freaking out. Like she basically homeschooled her kindergarten age kid for the first year. And now... He's supposed to send this kid to grade one this year and they're panicking. Yeah. Um, so just to re remind the listeners that um, uh, morbidity or sorry, mortality is very, very low in the zero to 12 group. Um, let's, I don't have the, the, the fact at our fingertip, but it's, I think it's in like 0.05%. So let's just say a hundred thousand zero to 12 year olds get sick. That's 50 deaths. Now, is that a political calculation that that 50 deaths is okay? I mean, it, you know, when you compare it to 100,000, that's a pretty low number, but it's 50 kids that have died. Like, like that's, that's not nothing, right? Um, also, uh, and remember, preventable and predictable deaths. Um, so, and then there's this idea of long COVID, which is you know, long-term uh, symptoms that result from the disease, even from people with... with um, mild symptoms and, and long COVID has such things as uh, fatigue, uh, shortness of breath, chest pain, uh, mental, um, sorry, cognitive disability from this, this cognitive fog that people talk about and loss of taste and smell that can last for a long, long time. We don't even know how long uh, essentially because we're too early in the course of the disease. So, I mean, that's out of that 100,000 magical number that I just made up. Um, that's uh, 8,000 to 13,000 kids that are going to be dealing with this consequence. Um, so, you know, the math isn't great. Um, and then I'll, I'll just mention, you're talking about this idea that uh, eventually we're going to have to turn, return to normal. Um, not, nobody in our group is advocating for lockdowns. We're not, we're not saying go to Wuhan January 2020 and everybody stays in their home and there's police in the streets. What we're saying is, We've gone down this path for, for, for 18 months. We know a lot about it. In particular, we know how it's transmitted and that asymptomatic transmission is a big deal. So we can put in place uh, procedures now to make life safer. Maybe not normal, but much safer. And that's 
things like preferentially socializing outside, um, wearing a well-fitting mask when you have to be indoors, minimizing your interaction with people indoors that are out of your, uh, not in your family cohorts, uh, doing ventilation assessment of public buildings so that we know that there's at least six air changes per hour, and that's in particular relates to hospitals and schools and other places where, where you know, our, our public institutions. And in those places that don't have good uh, ventilation, um, you know, open doors and open windows, and, and, if, and if that's not possible because, say, it's like minus 30 outside, uh, putting in filtration systems, which don't have to be expensive. They can be, uh, you know, $600 per room, which sounds like a lot, but when you have 30 students in the room, that's $20 per kid for a 10-year payback, right? Like these things work for a long time. Well, so I, think this, a, I think not, a hospitalized COVID patient is expensive too. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? exactly. And I, I don't know, we, they haven't released any of these numbers. I mean, there's been a huge lack of transparency from Alberta Health Services. But um, at one point, Jason Kenney uh, pointed out in, in a, a, a document that 11% of all the hospitalized patients in Alberta got COVID in the hospital. So, you know, this place where people are going to get better um, to, to be safe uh, has, has made people sick. And we still uh, have not learned to, uh, again, at Alberta Health Services, say the word airborne out loud and put in the proper mitigation procedures, including ventilation assessments. As far as I know, I mean, they, they may have done all this stuff and not released it to us, but, uh, um, but, but it's clear that, uh, that people are still getting sick in hospitals. There's still outbreaks happening. Um, in October of, of 2020, I, I asked for uh, the report on the misericordia outbreak in July of that year um, to be released so we could learn from it, so we could learn what went wrong and make sure it didn't happen again. And I was told uh, that it was, uh, they promised to, to release that without, with all the patient-related uh, data, uh, like information removed, so it was anonymized. Um, I'm, I'm still waiting for that. I haven't seen it. Um, my suspicion is, is they're worried about lawsuits because, uh, you know, something, some things have been going wrong. But unless we accept that we can learn from these errors, we're just going to keep making the same mistakes. And then the, you know, the litigation concerns just compile on each other. It's um, at some point you have to say, sorry, we made a mistake and this is what we're going to do to make it different. And we're not at that stage yet. When it when it comes to something like the spread of a virus and we have 18 months of information there math comes into play where it becomes like we talk about things like our value and we can calculate with great accuracy what's going to happen as in we know how it's going to spread we know what will happen when we do certain things we can calculate that number so when we actively ignore those numbers and I won't say any names here, just like, let's say just anyone that's in decision making that can actively ignore those numbers and make policy decisions. Um, do you have it like, I guess what I'm saying is like, I think that that's should be criminal. Um, do, you, do you agree with that at yeah. all? Like, is this a criminal? Are we getting to the stage where making these decisions ought to be looked at as negligent and criminal? Have you ever had Professor Oboku on yet from the University of Alberta. He's a pretty smart guy, um, constitutional law. And he said, unfortunately, there are no legal means to prevent people putting in stupid policy. Um, 
the you know people put in stupid policy all the time, and uh, we just say that that's uh, acceptable in our in our government. Um, I would argue, and, and and I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Let's be clear, I'm an emerge doc, but at a common sense level, governments who are elected to take care of the people, who are obviously not doing that, um, have lost their moral authority to govern. Um, and that's why I've been pretty comfortable saying that, that uh, Premier Kenny and, and Minister Chandra should resign as well as as, uh, as uh, Dr. Hinshaw, because, you know, if you are willing to put the entire province at risk, and let's be clear, double-vaxxed people are at risk because we are still seeing um, breakthrough infections amongst the, the double-vaccinated, and, and nobody's allowed, this is an experiment, nobody in the, nowhere in the world have they allowed um, Delta variants uh, to just go unchecked, except for perhaps India. I think that would be arguable. But they obviously didn't have the vaccination to back them up. So this is the first time we've allowed Delta to go unchecked amongst a vaccinated population or a partially vaccinated population. And so this is an experiment where we do not know the consequences of that. And because we're hearing of breakthrough infections among the double vax, I'll tell you, I'm wearing a good KN95 at any time I'm indoors. And I'll be wearing one today at the, at the rally. So... Um, what, how, can, how can they have the moral authority to govern when the people who elected them did not elect them on a mandate to hurt us? That's, this is exactly my point. Like the, if you're, at this point, how can you even argue that di- decisions made by government and public health authorities have led to death? I mean, it's impo- to, me, to me, it's just clear. Like we've been warned every step of the way, whether it's having you on the show or, or Dr. Gosha Gasparovitz on the show from the University of Calgary, who has told us every step of the way what's going to happen. She taught, we had her talking about the, what the R value going to be if we uh, lifted restrictions and had not quite didn't have 70% or only had 70% population vaccinated that it was going to be bad imagine trying to ca- how do you even calculate where we're at now where it's like not only are we not at 70% not only are we lifting all restrictions but now we're not even going to contract trace and tell you where it is so that if you don't want to get it, you don't even know that there's an outbreak at the grocery store. Or you don't even know that there's an outbreak at your office. Like how do you even calculate the R value of something like that without being breaking the stratosphere kind of thing? Like that's approaching R values of two in my eyes. <laughs> well, that. First of all, let's talk a little bit about um, the terminology, and then I want to talk about why, or let's let's speculate as to why they might do this. So the, there's an RT value, which is the one that you hear all the time. That's the real-time um, transmission rate. So with all the mitigation measures in place and, and behavioral changes that people make when they're in a pandemic, what is the actual um, transmission rate from, from uh, person to person? So if the R value is two, that means one person will transmit two other people. Uh, and, and that would lead to exponential growth. Anything above one is exponential growth. Anything below one is exponential decline. It's very hard to find one, which is, you know, how Dr. Hinshaw has called it uh, now an endemic disease. That's when, that's when your R value is one. So that means one person gives it to one person. You don't have exponential growth, exponential decline. It just kind of hangs on the population and you deal with it. Um, that is not the situation we're in now. It's a, the fourth wave. 
underpinning that is something called the R naught value. And that is what would the natural transmission rate be if you had none of those measures? If, if nobody was behaving uh, better than normal, if there were no uh, laws in place. Um, and so, for example, there's uh, airborne diseases like measles where the R naught is supposed to be 20. So one person will give it to 20 people. Uh, and then there's like original COVID, which was two to three. So one person will give it to two to three people. Um, we think Delta is somewhere in the range of six to eight. So about three times uh, that of the original variants and uh, uh, approximately the same as that of chickenpox, um, which we don't think about too much anymore because everybody's vaccinated, but uh, it's a very transmissible airborne disease. Um, so uh, so that's, that's bad um, if we allow it to be at six to eight. That means basically every week um, we have a 600 to 800% increase in our in our numbers, right? Like, or, or even faster than that if the turnaround time is less than seven days. So uh, that's bad. That that's pretty pretty bad. Um, and by hiding the numbers, uh, we won't see that, right? So we won't see that increase. We'll just see the increase in hospitalizations. So let's 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 do some speculation and let's emphasize, you know, for legal reasons that this is speculation. Um, why a government would want to hide the numbers and yet let let it rip through its uh, um, susceptible population. Uh, there was a something called the Great Barrington Declaration that came out late last year. Um, it was funded by the, the Cox brothers. They seem to poke their heads up uh, uh, frequently. Uh, and it came out of a libertarian think tank out of uh, Northeast United States. Um, and basically it said, as long as we protect our susceptible and uh, we should let it rip through our, through our uh, uh, people that are relatively unsusceptible, people that aren't at risk of, of going into the hospital and dying. Um, and, you know, you heard uh, the United Kingdom talk about that even early on in the pandemic, uh, like in, in March of 2020, this idea of herd immunity. Uh, but they quickly discounted that because it was quite clear, uh, you know, through uh, think other think tanks, through uh, the medical think tanks, um, that if that were allowed to occur, especially early on before vaccines, that the consequences would be horrific. Uh, not only to the elder population, but to the healthcare system. So despite the fact that we have no evidence uh, to back this up, um, the government, uh, I, I would speculate, has, seems to think that now that we have, um, uh, you know, somewhere around uh, 60, was it 63.5% or 64% of the population with a single vaccine in the arm, uh, and just uh, somewhere between 50 and 60% with double vaccines in the arm, um, that that's enough immunity um, to uh, allow it to let, to let a rip um, and still not overwhelm the healthcare system. And, and you know, there will be long-term consequences from long COVID and probably some deaths and probably some hospitalizations in ICU, but not enough to, uh, to, to uh, overwhelm the benefit of having everybody immune. So a couple problems with that. It's, it, we don't know the numbers. This is where the first country to ever do or first jurisdiction to ever do that and the second thing is is that nobody's ever actually achieved herd immunity with COVID the one country that there was the one place that was speculated to be close to herd immunity was Manaus in Brazil where a super high uh, a number of the populations you know somewhere upwards of 80 percent was suspected to have gotten COVID through the first wave um, with lots and lots of death and lots and lots of uh, morbidity um, and then they were completely devastated by the gamma variant, the P1 variant, that ripped through it again um, and, and didn't seem to care that uh, 
you know, they had lots of people that were suspected to have that first, uh, first exposure. So, um, Am I worried that uh, Alberta is going to be in a world of hurts uh, in a week or two or, or a month or two uh, under this policy? Absolutely. Uh, and I think we're even in trouble now because we are just allowing the, the stampede wave, uh, for lack of a better term, um, to, to go unmitigated uh, now that we have doubling times of, of five days. Do you, do you think that there is any chance that that is a coincidence, this August 16th date, as far as we're going to stop? texting for it as far as that's right around the time when we should have a be getting a good idea of the stampede wave as you call it yeah that would be speculation um <laughs> i said do you so think for the government that but I'll, I'll just point out that it's it's more than just the stampede wave too um, and the reason why we know that is because bc basically ditched all of its public health measures at july 1st the same day as we did and they have a very similar RT that we do. Um, so, uh, so that means it's, it's, it's not just stampede. It means those other measures were really important, you know, universal masking, um, the other public health measures, uh, limiting large gatherings. Um, the one counter to that is we've seen demographically that the majority of new cases right now in Alberta are in Calgary, especially amongst the 20 to 29. Uh, age group. And so guess who goes to Stampede and heads to the bars? Um, it uh, was Calgarians in the 20 to 29 age group. So uh, I, it's obviously a combination of factors, but not one or the other either. I wanted to ask about vaccination because, of course, it's, you know, we're not going to vaccinate our way out of this. However, it does help. But We've seen in the states, essentially, vaccination has uh, reached standstill. Looks like we're getting to that point here in Alberta. How can we get more people vaccinated? Yeah, I think, you know, again, it's hard to speculate motives, but uh, just from the communications from the government, there's a suggestion that this new policy is an attempt to get more people vaccinated. It's kind of this idea that, uh, you know, we're going to unleash this on society and if you want to protect yourself you better get vaccinated which i think is a really immoral way of approaching um, vaccination you know we allow you to, to make that choice but we are consciously um, going to expose you to the disease in an effort to convince you that uh, now's the time i think the problem with that is and you can see this with the lottery you know million dollars woohoo! it didn't really budge the numbers much right and that's because people that aren't getting vaccinated now aren't the 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 wishy-washy middle that like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. The people who aren't getting vaccinated have been fed misinformation from social media that either COVID isn't real, so this is a huge government overreach to ask people to get vaccinated, or alternatively, that there's actually harms associated with the vaccine, uh, you know, planting 5G chips, or that this is, a, you know, an untested vaccine, which flies in the face of the fact that there's been billions of people now vaccinated with these mRNA vaccines. Um, and they're not likely to be moved by by this argument because they feel either there's no threat or the, the, the threat of the vaccine outweighs um, the threat of the virus, which, you know, both uh, result from misinformation. So or their privileged mind, or their privileged lives have just allowed them to believe that nothing bad happens to them. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that, too. eh? 
Well, uh, seriously, like I just talked to somebody on the weekend who was exactly saying that. Like, I'm, I, I never get sick. I'm fine. Are yeah. you worried you're going to give it to a loved one? No. Uh, okay. And I think this we have to recognize <laughs> that it's different than back in March 2020, where that was the argument. Like, you may not get sick, but you're going to infect somebody else that's sick. Because the the people that are ending up in hospital now are the unvaccinated at any age, right? Like. You still have a lower risk of getting dead from COVID, but it's not a zero risk from getting dead from COVID if you're 20 to 29 years old. Um, and and long COVID, you know, 10 to 30 percent in adults. So um, that's that's a pretty big gamble. Like Russian roulette with with one bullet and a 10 chamber gun. Like I'm I'm not sure I'm playing that game. Um, so what would work? I think I think this idea of vaccine passports is excellent. Um, you know, you have the 100% choice of, of deciding whether you want vaccines in your arm. But if you decide you don't want to protect your fellow citizen, play your part, um, you know, maybe you shouldn't be getting on a plane and flying to Ottawa. Maybe you shouldn't be, uh, you know, going to the restaurant or the theater or, uh, you know, the Bruce Springsteen concert. Um, there are consequences. Everybody has, you know, the ability to choose, but there are consequences to our choices. And I think um, so far we've been really focused on the carrot, which is like uh, you'll be safe and you'll be uh, maybe get a million dollars. Those are good carrots uh, for some, uh, but we haven't really talked too much about the stick, which is you know there are consequences um, to your to your decisions. Well, what, is- what do you make of the concerns surrounding um, civil liberties? Um, with regards to vaccine passports and that you're uh (laughs) i don't want to sound like a freaky libertarian too much but that you're creating uh two tiers of uh, uh, of people um how how do you respond to that notion uh well i mean i I would say that we we have consequences all the time we have have you ever been to thailand or or uh uh, South America, you have to bring your immunization record with you because you need to have yellow fever vaccine and you need to have Japanese encephalitis vaccine. I mean, that's just expected if you're going to cross those borders. Um, same goes for schools, maybe not in Alberta, but in other jurisdiction. If you want to send your kid to a public school, you need to have proof of, uh, of you know, chickenpox and measles, mump, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Um, and these are just decided because uh, there are uh, you know, limits to, to freedom. We, we have decided to gather as a society to, to create, um, you know, our, our, our society as it is. And as such, we have rules which we have to follow. Um, and this would be one of those, uh, you know, uh, situations where in a pandemic um, with the vaccine, again, you can, you can make that choice, but there are consequences to that choice. Isn't it a Don't lot like... Isn't it just a lot like... Course, to go to a restaurant either right so isn't it kind of like asking or telling people they have to wear a seatbelt? like that's a well, civil liberty right like i why should my waist be constrained by this belt when i'm driving it's my choice my body well we don't want to clean up your splattered fucking brains because yeah. it's pain in the ass so you have to well that's even more like victimless and like than covid right like there's that What's that meme I just saw about the guy on the boat who goes to his cabin and digs through the floor and then water starts coming in and everyone else is like, hey, man, why'd you do that? And he's like, what's the matter? It's my cabin. (laughs) 
Exactly. Well, um, I'm driving on Highway 2, and I'm, I've decided to follow the rules and, and go in the correct lane going up and not going in opposing traffic. It's, uh, it's, good for you. you know, good for I, you. So we, so we got to wrap up, but I want to ask, let's, let's end on a positive because we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, about democracy and how it doesn't need to just happen every four years. And uh, I'm, I'm less pessimistic than I was 55 minutes ago when we started talking about this. And I, I, do, I do believe, obviously, that um, activism and, and people standing up is what makes the biggest difference in democracy and why that's a great thing. Do you see um, Alberta as being, you know, a beacon of something good coming with, with the way you're seeing people react? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, recognizing I'm not a political scientist, but I've been reading a lot about democracy, uh, thanks to David Mosscrop and David Meslin's books uh, this last year. I highly recommend them. Um, but um, we live in a representative democracy. And what that means is every four years, we elect a representative to to um, be our, our, our rep in, in either the legislature or parliament, because we as individuals feel like we don't have the time to really dig deep into the issues and learn them all. So we basically hired somebody to do that job for us. And uh, because of our uh, electoral system, we, we suspect that that person is going to represent our views geographically uh, the best uh, through our um, perhaps flawed first-past-the-post system. So that's how our, our democracy is structured. But when we elect somebody to... Uh, to, to the legislature for four years, they don't have a free pass to do whatever they want. Even though they have a majority in the government, they still need to represent us as, as, uh, as citizens. And if they start putting in policies which are in direct contravention to what our desires are uh, as citizens, then it's, it's our obligation to stand up and to, to tell them that. And sometimes we do that through letters and sometimes we do that through meetings. But in an emergency where we only have, you know, 13 days left to, to get our message through, I would argue the only way of doing that is through marching in the streets. And so, um, so now is the time to, 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 to show the world and to show our, our legislators what democracy look, what looks like. And that, uh, you know, as citizens, we won't stand for this kind of, of behavior and then the the flip side of this and this is where maybe it gets a little dark if we fail um i'm really worried where this will go because if if we say that it's okay for them to take our away our right to life and the security of purpose uh person like then sky's the limit man like can like when they start i don't know like go in your darkest place and see where they, they can go because that's that's about as dark as it gets to me, where they're they're comfortable infecting um, vast swaths of the population with COVID. Well, we we live in a place where we grow up thinking that, like you said, you grow up thinking adults know everything and whatnot. We grew up in a world where you think that every someone will take care of it for you. Someone will take care of you for you. So if something bad happens to you, even if like we live in a place where you can do something stupid, like go somewhere you're not supposed to climb some rock you shouldn't have climbed or go down some river you shouldn't have gone down and we'll send like a hundred people to go save you. So we yeah. live in a place where people will come to your aid when you're in trouble. So it's it's it would already be disheartening if 
we had something like COVID show up and they said, well, we can't help you if you get it. It's another thing entirely for to live in a place now where the government is like, we're going to set it up so that you're more likely to get it. Not and, only are we not going to help you, but we're going to make sure you probably get it. Firefighting system that dismantled it right like in the climate crisis. What a BC's disaster that's unfolding now. It happened in Alberta. Where would we be? It would be uh, like so bad. So, um, so, so basically, this is the first time in a two and a half year mandate that the citizens are holding the government to account. And so be heartened by that. Be heartened that people aren't just sitting at home going, oh, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Agreed. It's the only way to change. And I hate a world where it's like, it is what it is. I can't stand that. It's the only way to make change is to say that that's no good. We're going to wrap up. We're going to let you go. I could not, I cannot uh, thank you enough for giving us time while you're driving to one of these rallies. Um, it's important. You know, I think we all agree it was important to get this episode out as quick as possible. Um, if you're listening and please do what you can, like go to one of these rallies. If you're not in Edmonton or Calgary, uh, feel free to organize one in Medicine Hat or, or Lethbridge or Red Deer, but do write, call, tweet, p- get pissed, do whatever you can. Yeah, but I, I hear there's a lot of space outside Drew Burns's office. For, that's uh, right. That's right. It's a nice big cast. parking lot for people if you want to go and say hi to somebody. and that, or, or Michaela Glasgow, who's actually still in the government. Maybe go visit her and, and, and tell her what you think of this. Because uh, as we've said, every step of the way, if they do what they're going to do, it's going to get bad. And then it gets bad. And can we stop being... having to predict these awful futures and do something about it anyways thank you my friend appreciate you being on the show man it's been great i'm glad there's been no major crashing noises yet so that's been good (laughs) jeremy if you're in in calgary i'd love to have you come to one of the rallies and speak um you know uh your your media so you're supposed to be impartial but now is the time to stand up and be counted right yeah well uh, that, that that's certainly a possibility but i want a recording of that if that happens <laughs> in, in any event um thank you so much for showing this leadership when uh official um institutions uh are, have failed us completely and uh it's always great to talk to you joe oh great to be on and just remember the alternative to winning is unthinkable 100 percent sure would like to hang out with you sometime under uh more positive circumstances my friend but good luck today take care drive safe we'll talk soon that's not for now all right take care bud Bye-bye. all right guys it's that time in the show where we say thank you to those of our patrons who go way above and beyond anything we could ever f- hope for to chris sterwald to dave bond miller to nicola dinicola thank you guys so much for everything you guys do hope you guys are having a great summer to the patrons to our listeners Not only thank you for being here, but get out there and do something about this, you guys. Um, We do not want to be this well-known across the world for something like this. It was, it's funny when we are internationally known for our uh, oil war rooms, it's less funny when we're internationally known for uh, policies that are going to get people killed. So let's fucking do something about it. Take care you guys. We'll see you guys uh, next week. Uh, Bye for now.